Light, welcome. So great to have you back and congrats on Knowing Where to Look, an incredible book. Congratulations. Thank you, man. You cut your hair. I, I did. I, I did. I did. A, I shaved the whole thing and it's growing back now. It's in the process of growing back, but it will grow back. It's growing back. See, look at this. It's growing back. Yeah, I got a piece of my book about cutting hair, about how I cut my own hair once, but we can talk about that later. <laughs> so one of the things I really liked about the book is you talk about exclusively living from inspiration. And so can you talk a little bit about what inspiration means to you? And, and when did your, what did your relationship with inspiration begin? Where did it begin? You know, I, I, I had a, a moment in when I was probably nine or 10 years old. And I live in, a, I have come from a family of six. So we were always kind of on top of each other. Three brothers were all within like five years of one another, both parents. So it's a, in hindsight, it was a really good childhood. My parents were there. My brothers were all there. We were all very close. We all played together. But it always felt like there were so many people around. And I remember one day, just one random afternoon, getting a feeling to go for a walk by myself just to kind of get some time to myself. And I went for a walk and I went to the corner and then I walked down to a few other corners from there. And then, you know how when you're a kid, you kind of have your known universe. Like this, these are the areas where I normally operate in. I ride my bike here, I play here. Well, I went to the edge of my universe and then I decided to keep walking. <laughs> and I kept going and I kept going. And then probably maybe 10 miles later, I ended up at this, this shopping center in Montgomery, Alabama, where I grew up. And I was like, wow. I was kind of, I was like pushing my own comfort zone. And again, this is, this is in the 19, I was born in 73. So this would have been in like early eighties and there were no cell phones. There were no, you had quarters in your pocket for the, the pay phone in case you had to make a call. And you knew everybody's number off the top of your head, of course. And so I called my mom and I remember her freaking out because I was so far away and I didn't announce that I was going to be walking this far, but two things, the fact that I kind of left my comfort zone and that she freaked out really intrigued me, maybe, maybe curious about other areas of life where I could push the envelope. And then I remember later on in high school. I, I was realizing that, hey, I'm spending so much time thinking about what I'm going to wear to school today. And I wonder if anybody's even looking or paying attention. So then I, I ran this experiment. I didn't tell anybody. I just decided I'm going to wear the same thing every day and see if anybody notices. So I had this purple sort of mock turtleneck and these like khaki pants that I wore every day and I washed them at night. And if anyone noticed it, no one said anything. And it really opened up a lot of possibilities because I was like, well, I'm, I don't have to spend this time focusing on what I'm going to wear because everyone's so absorbed in their own little worlds that no one's even noticing anyway. So those are the kinds of experiments that I would sort of run as a child. I didn't have language for it. I just was naturally curious about getting out of my comfort zone and not being overly obsessed about what other people think. And now I, in hindsight, I'm in my late forties, I can look back and I can see, oh, those were the sort of embers of this journey of 
what I call in the book, leaving a little bit of wiggle room in the plan for inspiration to kind of take hold and to kind of nudge you and poke you and guide you in different directions. So I can I can see it now back when I was actually very young. But and I would just say inspiration for me is an internal guidance to express yourself in a certain way or to do something in a certain way. But when you follow through on that guidance, it usually leaves you feeling more expansive in some way. It never really makes you feel contracted. It makes you feel like there's more possibilities, not less possibilities. So how do you define, quote unquote, true inspiration? And how do we recognize it? And how do we cultivate it when it doesn't seem to be there? So you have to do what the Facebook ad people do. You have to split test. I'm serious. Because <laughs> there's so many voices inside, especially if you're not consciously following inspiration from an early age. There's so many voices that start to cloud your awareness. There's the pain voice. There's the trauma voice. There's the stress triggers. There's the voice of your parents. There's social conditioning. So all those voices are in there. And there's the voice of inspiration, which is kind of like when people say, follow your heart or be yourself or find authenticity. They're all referring to the voice of inspiration within. And so you have to, I tell people, and this is kind of the idea behind, you know, why I wrote the book and the way that I wrote it with these little stories to help encourage and and people to take small actions, right? You take small actions. So in any given moment, every adult human, and probably you could even include kids, are contemplating options between, do I eat a peanut butter sandwich or do I eat broccoli salad? Do I uh, work on my passion project or do I make do emails for this other thing, right? If we can just kind of hone in on some of those options, maybe five or 10 a day, and practice listening to what feels most expansive and we you know we're not going to get it right every time but if we practice it maybe six out of ten times we'll feel we'll feel what we're supposed to feel from following that voice and the other times we'll end up in our you know burying our face in a bowl of fruit loops or you know donuts or something (laughs) saying i was listening to my body but really you were listening to the stress in your body that was telling you you need more carbohydrates or whatever. And that's fine. Everything is all fine, but it's all experimentation, right? And then over time, you'll start to discern, oh, that's the voice of inspiration. And this is some other voice that wants to make me more uh, comfortable. That's another distinction is that the inspiration voice is not making you more comfortable. It's actually pushing your comfort zone. It's pushing you into the growth zone where you feel a little stretched in a good way. Whereas the other voices tend to want to just say retreat or run or do this thing that makes you really comfortable. What's your coping mechanism? Do that. Those are the other voices. So once you have enough empirical evidence, then you'll start to see for yourself, oh, okay, this is what my voice of inspiration sounds like and feels like when I follow through on it. Because nobody can really tell you that's what inspiration is and this is not it. No one can do it. Only you can tell that for yourself as far as I can say. So a cousin of inspiration, if you will, inner guidance, and I'm going to go to inner GPS and picture you walking around aimlessly in in Montgomery, Alabama in the early 80s or late 70s. You didn't have, 
you, you didn't have your GPS, if you will. So how do you think about our own inner GPS and how do we connect to that? That's another good point. And I love the visualization of a GPS because what a GPS does, it's not like draconian where if you miss the turn, it shuts off and you lose, you get lost. No, it just reroutes, right? It keeps rerouting no matter how far you deviate off of whatever the path that set out for you was, it'll keep rerouting you to your ultimate destination. And I feel like the heart does that as well, right? So when we are living from our internal GPS, it's not a, a thing where we have to do X, Y, and Z at a certain amount of time. We have some wiggle room in there to kind of play around and explore and research for ourselves. And But there's this calling, there's this sense inside that doesn't quite leave us. It keeps rerouting us back to the thing that is our path and our purpose. For instance, I have a friend right now who is contemplating this financial obligation that he put himself into, where he told he said he was going to give a certain amount of money to a certain cause, and he hasn't fulfilled completely on that desire. And he's kind of running the um, thought that maybe he was out of his mind at the time when he made the obligation because it was a lot of it was a significant amount but this was like a year ago and he's still thinking about it he's still processing it he still doesn't know what the right thing to do is and so his options are do i not honor my word or do i follow through on my word and my suspicion is that his internal gps which is really what was responsible for him coming up with that idea in the first place is rerouting him back to that place of giving, because that's what's going to stretch him the most, right? It's comfortable to like contract and say, oh, I was thinking I was out of my mind. And it's true. You were out of your mind. You were in your heart. That's what being in the heart means. You have to get out of your intellect, which is going to always give you a thousand good reasons why you shouldn't grow and stretch and get out of your comfort zone. And that's what you're really looking for. So when you start to feel that is a gateway to your growth zone, and the inspiration's job is to kind of push you out of that. And so the more we listen to it and the more we follow it, the stronger it gets, the less we have to rely on discipline and shaming ourselves in order to get over that hump out of the comfort zone and into the growth zone. So it's a great story. And I, where I go next are the obstacles we encounter. Everyone's like, everyone's thinking inner GPS, inspiration. I'm there. Sign me up, Light. I'm buying the book. I'm on board. I think we all want more of that. And then the obstacles come. When I think of obstacles, I think of fear. I think of uncertainty and the unknown. And I'll start with the first, I'll start with uncertainty and the unknown. You do make it sound like an art form. And, and I, I do get the impression it is, or I believe, you know, it's a muscle. You got to work it. You got to put the time in to, to build it. Is it that simple? Is it putting in the work? Is it doing that A-B testing, if you will, to kind of build that muscle and you can't expect to overcome the obstacle of, of dealing with ambiguity or dealing with the unknown on the other side overnight? Yeah. I mean, look, it's it's you don't arrive at a place where everything gets clear all of a sudden, right? It's just like what Steve Jobs says, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them in hindsight. So 
Actually, I didn't answer your previous question about how do you cultivate it. Now, obviously, I'm a big meditation guy. I've been meditating like clockwork every day for 20 years. And I always tell people that has been a fundamental aspect of my ability to now consciously hear and then follow my inspiration. So the book opens up with this one story about Mark Twain, who's got the famous saying that your two most important days, the day you were born and the day you find out why. And then I added a third day in there, which I feel like is the most important day, which is taking action on your why. So it's one thing to know, okay, this is my gift. This is my talent. This is what I'm really good at. This is what I'm really intuitive at. But there's another thing altogether to actually do something with that. And I think one thing that stops us from doing it is we don't know how it's going to turn out. And maybe we're in a great situation now on paper where we're getting a great salary. We have wonderful title. People look up to us. We have all this influence and maybe power. But inside the heart saying the golden handcuffs. Yeah, exactly. We like to call those the golden handcuffs. But what I have gotten from a daily meditation practice is you cultivate this sense of spaciousness inside that gives you the ability to kind of pull back a little bit and just see, okay, is this in alignment with where I am right now? And then to trust that sense of inspiration that you have inside, because that's important to have that trust. And when you have that, then you can follow through on it a lot easier because it is hard. You're right. And this is not a call for everyone to sit down and close their eyes on a cushion. You can also practice gratitude. You can also volunteer your time. You can also do stream of consciousness journaling every morning. You can also spend time in nature. Like Eckhart Tolle has a famous story of going out and sitting on a park bench for eight hours a day for a couple of years. And he kind of downloaded his idea, the inspiration for the power of now. Everyone thought he was nuts, right? Imagine you get up, get dressed in the morning, go to work. And your brother or your friend is going out to the park for eight hours a day and living off of you, you would think they were completely insane, right? But you would never imagine in a million years that person would then catapult to becoming the second most well-known spiritual per presence on planet Earth 10 or 15 years later, which is what happened with Eckhart Tolle. And you never know what our path entails, but the important thing is if you listen to what's going on inside of you and you follow through on that to the best that you can, the next step is not going to get revealed until you take that first step. And that's, there's so many, so much evidence for this. So you just, we just, and, and the whole idea behind the book, the reason it's called Knowing Where to Look is it's not a book of answers. It's a book of nudges and pokes. It's just saying, hey, if you have this feeling, then you should look in this direction and you'll find the answers. If you look inside of yourself, you stop looking at your idea of success being, you know, making a lot of money and start looking at success being equated to fulfillment. That's where you'll find the answers. And so it's about helping people to be more self-sufficient, which is what, which is all that I can do as a teacher. Cause that's what I do. That's what I've been doing for the last 15 plus years. It's helping people become self-sufficient. So now we're just doing it through inspiration. So let's, unpack fear a bit and and kind of reframe fear fear not as an obstacle but fear is something that we want to befriend we want to utilize we want to leverage and the role fear has to potentially move us forward push us forward kick us forward in realizing those dreams so let's talk about fear and reframe it so fear is it's a very 
old and relevant survival mechanism, right? And I think as long as we understand that fear is going to be a part of the equation when you're talking about leaving a comfort zone situation and moving in the direction of your growth zone, then you don't need to get, you don't need to see the fear as a sign that it's not meant to be or any aspect of fear as as big of a barrier as it already is going to seem in your journey right because it's there people think there's a lot of com- a lot of these podcast conversations end up going into light you're living out of a backpack you've been nomading and all that i don't think i can ever do that and the reason people say that is because they are afraid of all the thing, all the comforts and conveniences that they will lose from taking that journey. And guess what? I'm in the same boat, right? I have the same concerns. But again, from practicing this in a very conscious way over a very long time, like I didn't just wake up one day and decide, okay, I'm going to do this. Whereas before that, I was completely living a conventional life. Like I've been practicing this stuff for a very long time. And that's the only way really to get rid of the fear is to be around it, to expose yourself to it. It's like these those videos, you see the guy in the lion's den and the lion's coming. You think the lion's about to attack him and then turns out the lion starts kissing and hugging the guy because the guy was like there when the lion was a little kid. And so now there's a familiarity there. We need to get like that with fear. We need to get a relationship going with our fears. And you can only really do that if you start when the fear is small. Right. You start with the little fears and then when the fears get a little bit bigger than that, you continue the, the relationship and you continue challenging it. And then by the time the fear gets like lion like, like there's no way you would any sane person would go into a lion's den without ever having had any exposure to a lion. Right. But if you've been around it since the thing was a cub, it's you don't think any more about it than going into a Starbucks. Right. You just go in there and we need to be like that with fear. So don't get rid of all your stuff tonight and become nomadic tomorrow or whatever your version of that is, start small now. Do it with little small things. Like if you're in an elevator and you see somebody's boots and you think to yourself, those are really nice boots, right? And then something in your heart says, compliment the person, like tell them they're really nice boots. Instead of like saying no, talking yourself out of the little thing with really no repercussions, go ahead and just listen to it. And then if you walk out the door and something inside of you says, take a left and you take and but your place where you're going is to the right. Listen to it. Go to the left and just go for a block to the left and just see what happens, because that's how it starts. It starts with the little things. Right. Someone if if a voice says go and ask the person for their number because you think they're nice and you want to go out for a tea. Don't talk yourself out of the little things. And then eventually you'll be able to do the bigger things. So you have all these great daily doses of inspiration in the book and they're intended to to help us live in our purpose. And purpose is a big word. Purpose is everything. Purpose is the why. So many people are, we're looking for purpose. We want to have deeper purpose. And so what's your stance on purpose? Is it set in stone? Does it evolve? What brings us closer? I want to know what Light Watkins thinks about purpose. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think it's all of those things. I think there are aspects of the purpose 
that are set in stone in the sense that there's like an overarching purpose. There's something that we've been born with. There are natural curiosities that we have from when we're very little, and those curiosities don't really go away. And they continue, they sort of navigate us in the direction of our purpose. But then on the ground level, I think it evolves day to day. And we learn more, as we learn more about ourselves, as we learn more about our society, as we develop language for our relationship between ourselves and our society and what our professional and uh, recreational contributions are to that society. And I think that it is, it's being informed by new experiences, new life experiences, right? So for instance, I have a podcast that you've been on and my podcast is all, it's called At the End of the Tunnel. And it's all about sharing stories of people who've sort of overcome trials and tribulations and they found their calling through that. And so when we talked about your story, how I would relate that to this idea of purpose is you had to go through the bond trading or the whatever you were equity trading. You had to go through that experience to understand that life is not about just making hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. Like that's nice. There's a purpose for that, for the time that you're in, right? You can get your Rolex and all of that. But ultimately you want to move in the direction that's going to create some sort of fulfillment within. And so then you get into these sort of entrepreneurial ventures where you you literally take your back to a point where it goes out on you and you have sciatica pain. So if you hadn't been going down that path, you would not have been in the doctor's office where they said you should try yoga. And so then through that, you, you discover green juice and eating well and meditation and all. And so then that leads to mind, body, green. So we could make the argument that mind, body, green was always in your path and your purpose, but you had to go through all these other steps first in order to arrive at that in, in the most authentic way. And I, I would say that everybody's in that. So whatever you're doing right now, whether you're working in a toll booth in the New, New Jersey Turnpike, whether you're working, whether you're like babysitting your nanny for 12 kids, whether you are working at a, at a hot dog stand, there's something about that experience that is going to play a role in your overarching ultimate purpose. All you have to do is just keep showing up in an authentic way. And I tell a story in the book, and I'm, I don't know if you... Um, came across this one, but it's about, it's a New York story about back when Whole Foods opened up on 7th Avenue. And because I used to live in New York and it was like this huge deal. Now we had like two or three Whole Foods and you would go to this Whole Foods and, and the whole thing with Whole Foods in New York is there was like 12 checkout lines and they were all like velvet roped off. And so they were like shuffling all these people through. And before they had the monitors, calling out numbers, there was a guy, there was this tall African-American guy who was like a boxing ring announcer. That's how he would call out people's numbers. And I remember seeing this guy and just being so spellbound by how stately he was and how confident he was. And looking back now, someone in their 40s, you think, okay, well, he probably wasn't making that much money working at Whole Foods, right? Calling out numbers. That's kind of a, that would be considered a crappy job on paper. You can't pick up a girl saying, hey, I call out numbers at Whole Foods in New York City. But the way he treated the job, the way he showed up to the job, it was like he was being paid a million dollars a year. That's how it felt. And so when your number came up, 
he didn't have to get your attention because you were already paying attention to him because he had such a wonderful presence. And so I would make note of this and I would even go there and hope he was there when I was in line to check out. And then two or three months later, I see the New York Times on the front cover. There's a profile of the guy from Whole Foods. Some reporter was in the line and was so taken by this man's whole presence that she wrote a profile about him. And even when you're in the cover of the New York Times, God knows what kind of opportunities. He's probably a radio announcer now. He's probably working at some arena somewhere. But that's the thing. If you really show up to whatever you're doing and you become world-class at whatever, whether it's selling hot dogs or whether it's sweeping out the subway train, whatever it's doing, whatever you're doing, someone is going to notice. And so that's the whole idea, right? It's like, there are no throwaway moments out there. And our job is not to try to figure out intellectually, how am I gonna get out of the situation? It's to really be as present and as authentic as we can be. And then whatever opportunities are there will be revealed to you at that point. I love that story. And I started thinking, well, maybe the whole guy at Whole Foods doesn't do so well, but the guy calling out numbers at Erwan, I think, you know, <laughs> <laughs> right. people are probably dying to connect with that guy. And what I love about the book, you have so many great anecdotes. And one of them, one of my favorites, you picked out some for me, which I appreciate. And there's one you didn't pick out for me, which I love because I'm a Seinfeld junkie because I grew up oh, with Seinfeld. Yeah. Opposite. Yeah, and I, I was at Columbia during like the height of Seinfeld and the, the diner, the, the iconic Seinfeld diner was like a block. We used to go there, like the actual, the guy who was the real Kramer doing the reality bus tour, would we would see him. It was just happening right in front of us. Plus the show was, was great. I grew up with it. So I'm going to go back to, you mentioned Seinfeld. I'm like, oh man, I love this. You have a great Seinfeld story. So can you talk about, what can we learn from the, the iconic sitcom? There's, there's some wisdom here. Yeah. And for those of us who are younger and don't remember Seinfeld, there was this really classic episode where George Costanza, who was notoriously down and out, living at his parents, broke, never in a good relationship. He was complaining to George one day. I mean, he's complaining to Jerry one day about his situation and how he just can't seem to get his stuff together. And they finally work out that George keeps making the the worst choices. So then Jerry goes, well, just do the opposite of everything you're doing. Whatever you feel naturally inclined to do the opposite. <laughs> and so George runs that experiment. And then very short, shortly after that, he ends up with this amazing job with the Yankees. He gets in this beautiful relationship. He moves out from his parents and his whole life turns around. And so that's, I use that as an illustration for the reader because a lot of times, again, we can obsess around why my, is my life not filled? What am I doing wrong? I have on paper, everything looks great, right? But I just don't feel great. And it's like challenge the assumption that you're doing all the right things and maybe try doing the opposite. Instead of going just for the money, go for something that feels that makes your heart sing. Instead of trying to impress people, become the person you want to date and see what happens after that, right? And just as many in as many places as possible, try the opposite. And again, these are all little experiments. And so there are prompts at the end of each one telling people, hey, look, just consider doing it this way or that way and just see what happens. I don't know what's going to happen, but just see what happens. This is what I experience. I'd love to hear what you experience. 
So I'll pick out another one that, that you picked out appropriately for me, which I loved. If you could share a little bit about One Bike Left. <laughs> so I picked that one for you because obviously you're a family guy. You've been in a long-term relationship. So you would have an appreciation for the way men can think about a situation. Not always, but every, you know, we can think about a situation differently than a woman can think about a situation. And I told the story of being down in uh, Mexico in Tulum and we were at this resort and there was only one bike left to rent. So we decided to rent the one bike. She was going to, my girlfriend at the time was going to ride on the handlebars and I was going to pedal the bike. And so we were riding along and we ran into some friends of mine from New York. It was a couple, newly married couple, and they were on two bikes. He was on one bike and she was on the other bike. So we stopped and we talked and everything. And I was kind of feeling some kind of way about this. I was like, oh my God, it's kind of embarrassing because here we are sharing a bike. So it looks like I'm a cheap bastard for not you know, splurging for the second bike from my girlfriend. And so I'm thinking about this in the back of my mind while we're having this conversation with this couple. And then when we leave, I'm pedaling away. She's back on the handlebars. And I kind of poke her and I say, I bet that guy thinks I'm so cheap for not getting you your own bike, even though he would obviously doesn't know that there was only one bike left. And then she says, that's funny because I was just thinking how romantic his wife probably found it that we were sharing the same bike. And I was like, oh, yeah, I didn't even think about it like that. <laughs> Again, knowing where to look. They, man. Do you keep in touch with that couple? Are they still together? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. There you could have had a profound impact on that relationship. Okay, that's yeah. good. That's good. <laughs> no, I think they're still so, together. So you've got so many great stories. You actually offer the book is 108, 100, mm. 108 pieces of inspiration. So I, I have an idea of why 108, but I, I want to hear from you. Why 108? Well, obviously, 108 is an auspicious number in the spiritual slash wellness community. It comes from India and the Vedas, and there's all kinds of like geo, geometric and and astrological justifications for it that would just bore the hell out of anybody listening to this. But the reason I decided upon 108 is because naturally there was a conversation around, well, let's do 365. I mean, these doses come from a daily dose of inspiration email that I've been sending out since 2016. So I have thousands of them. I have thousands that I've written. And so it's a it's really an anthology of the greatest hits, right? These are ones that have been sent out for the most part. There's some new ones in here as well, but these are ones that have been sent out and they got the biggest engagement. They got the biggest impact. So in a way, they've already been focus grouped to be impactful. And I didn't want there to be 365 because I didn't want, I didn't want people to think that this was a linear read, like I'm supposed to read it from cover to cover. I want it, I want it, people to feel like I can just open this thing up to any page and see what catches my eye and and whatever catches my eye is what I apparently needed to read that day because you know we've all been in a bookstore and you see a cover of a book and you think oh this is interesting you crack it open to some random page and if you're lucky there's some wonderful little story or anecdote that piques your interest I wanted every page of this book to be like that right no matter what page you open it up to there's just a Every story is just one page, maybe two at the most. And it's something that hopefully piques your interest. And if you don't find it interesting, you can just turn it to a new page and find something. And within two or three 
turns, you'll find something that will relate directly to whatever you're going through because it's a broad range of topics from commitment, relationships, to meditations, spirituality, pretty much anything you can name that people are going through because it's stuff that I go through. And again, it's like taking from my own life experience and I'm just, I'm a householder. I'm living life like everybody else. So I have money concerns sometimes. I have concerns about quitting jobs and all. Of, and so I write about all of those things. And and it's kind of like, you remember those magic eight balls that from when we were kids, you shake them up and it's got that blue liquid inside. You ask a question and then the answer kind of appears in the window. So I wanted it to feel kind of like that, except without the answer, it's just like a direction, like look, look behind <laughs> you. So success. What does healthy and conscious success look like for you personally, professionally? How, how do you think about success? I find success to be whatever you're doing that feels aligned, right? And I'm not even going to say aligned with your heart or your soul or anything like that. Just aligned with whatever you're you're going through in this moment. So... If you are, and it's not, and it's not anything to do with how much money you have. I think that's kind of the old model for success that hopefully you grow out of at some point, or you, you make, like like what Jim Carrey said, you make enough money, you get all the things you wanted, so you can finally see that's not the that's not the answer. But it's really just about being in the moment with whatever you're experiencing. So, for instance, if you're having a relate a conversation with a friend or your partner, and you're really present in that conversation, right? It doesn't matter how the conversation goes necessarily, but if you feel like you're really present, you're really listening, you're really seeing that person, then that's a moment of success versus preoccupied. I'm thinking about 10 other things. I'm like half listening and all of that, but say the conversation turns out undramatic, that's not necessarily a successful interaction. And so it's the whole principle of the way you do anything is the way you do everything. So ultimately you're practicing, you're honing your ability to be present with as many things as you possibly can. And that gives you the ability to take action without wondering what people are thinking about you, right? Which again, is one of the biggest reasons why we don't do what our heart tells us to do is because we're so obsessed with what people, what society is going to say if we fail, right? And so thinking about failure, not as the opposite of success, but the opposite of not trying, not following through of what our heart is telling us to do. I've got this one story in here, which talks about Prince back in the eighties when he was right before Purple Rain and all of that, when he became a superstar, right? he was opening up for the Rolling Stones. I think it was in 81 or something. And there were 90,000 fans in the Rose Bowl. Obviously, not many people knew who he was or what his whole deal was. So this guy comes out with high heel shoes and this funny hairstyle and everything. And he gets booed. He gets booed three songs into his set. People are throwing hot dogs. People are throwing Coke cups and all kinds of crazy stuff up on stage at him. And he ends up leaving the, the stage, right? And it's just fascinating to, to know that two years later, he's like one of the biggest superstars in the world. But he's not the only superstar that's gotten booed 
Beyonce has been booed off stage. Drake has been booed off stage. Rihanna's been booed off. Kanye West has been booed. Like every pop star, Lady Gaga, they've all been booed off stage. And again, it's it's just an illustration that hey, that's a part. That's a rite of passage. If you are doing something that puts you in a position to get booed or to get rejected in a in a humiliating way. That oftentimes it means that you're doing something that is ahead of the envelope. And so it's not a sign that is not meant to be. It's a sign to keep going because there's a way to use those boos in order to kind of find your own sense of purpose and your own path and to double down on that and then let everyone else catch up to you after that. So you mentioned being booed. Maybe you're not being booed, but you know everyone has bad days. I'm sure you have bad days. What, what do you do when you're having a bad day? Do you have a go-to or routine when you're just in a funk? Maybe someone booed you on the streets of Mexico City. <laughs> you know, that, that's how all this started, actually. All this, these daily doses of inspiration. When you spend a significant amount of time writing these things for people to consume, and to hopefully feel a little boost of inspiration from it, it forces you to go back through your life and to reevaluate what happened versus what you can learn from it. And, and so I, again, I've done that thousands of times. And so I find that when I'm in a funk or when I'm having a bad mood or something like that, I try to just center in on the whatever I just experienced and like, what's a way I can reverse engineer the gratitude here. And I'm not always successful at doing this and it may take a little while to, to kind of reach the end of it, but at least I'm asking the question, you know, let's say this happened for me. What are 10 ways that 10 reasons that this could have happened for me? And I literally, sometimes I just start writing those reasons out and that may turn into something. It may turn into a story. It may turn into an anecdote. It may turn into something that I share, or it may just be something personal that I just keep to myself. And it kind of helps me to stay focused on my path. Because one of the things that happens when you're on your conscious path is you, there are no cheerleaders usually. You're not going to get people saying, hey, keep going, don't give up, and all that. Because everyone else is so self-absorbed in just trying to figure their own stuff out that they're not, they don't really have, unless it's your mother or something, because people aren't necessarily coming out of the woodwork to make sure that you're staying on your path. So it's a very, it's a very self-generated type of inspiration that one needs in order to continue moving forward. But that's why having as many tools as possible really helps a lot. So like I say, the meditation stuff and the and the gratitude stuff is really important. And that's why I'm so happy, and I wrote about this in the book, why I invested in my meditation practice back when I did. There's a piece called The Discipline Illusion, where somebody commented once about how they think I'm so disciplined. And I was like, no, I'm actually not disciplined at all. It's just that I'm realistic about my shortcomings. So you know, I know I have a tendency when I go to the store to get a bunch of junk food that I don't need or that's not good for me, so I have to eat before I go shopping because otherwise I'll end up with a bunch of stuff <laughs> in my cart that's not going to help my goals, my health goals. And working out, I don't like working out by myself. I like working out with other people. So I found a gym that, this is back when I wrote this, I found a gym in my neighborhood that I could walk to, didn't have to get in my car, and it was like group workouts. And so that that inspired me to keep going back. And meditation 
I didn't try to like, yeah, I hit my head against the wall for three or four years. And then I paid my teacher, Tom's, uh, Charlie's dad. I paid him a lot of money. Tom, for, yeah. yeah, it was a lot of money for me at the time. But he really taught me like how to take all the guesswork out of the meditation practice. And now I actually look forward to doing it. Right. And so if there's anything you want to have more discipline with, put yourself in proximity with that thing in a way that doesn't require discipline. And like, I want to learn Spanish. So what do I do? I go to Mexico City. Now I'm, I have to learn some Spanish at least because a lot of people down there don't speak Spanish, right? But it's not because I have discipline. It's like I need to order food. <laughs> and so I need to figure it out one way or the other, right? And, and then whatever you're struggling with now, there's maybe a way to put yourself closer in proximity to that. So zooming out, there are certainly a lot of obstacles we're, we're facing collectively right now in the world. Uh, although I'm an optimist, I'm very optimistic about you know, 21, where we are, but th there are many obstacles. And if we bring it back to inspiration, inner guidance, how do we use that, not just a tool for ourselves, but mm -hmm. to make a world a, a better place, overcome some of these obstacles that to many seem insurmountable? So how, yeah. how do we tap into it? So the blueprint for that, what you're talking about is embedded within the path itself, meaning you don't have to figure that out because that's going to be too much work, too overwhelming. All you have to do is take the next step. And then once you take the next step, the third step will be revealed. And then the fourth step and like that. And, and I use an example of if let's say you're really into video games and that's all you want to do is play video games, right? So you get really good at not just playing video games, but understanding how video games are made, understanding why certain games are better than other games. And so you become so enmeshed in this world that you just, you learn all about it inside and out because that's your passion. And then let's say a year or two or three from that, you come across this boy or girl who is in who has cancer or who is whatever is incapacitated in some way. And then you have an epiphany. Oh, wow. You know, what if we could get video games in the hospitals? Because this little kid that I just connected with made me feel so compassionate and empathetic for their situation. And I know that if we could just get video games into their hospital rooms, then that would be, that would make help make their journey a little bit easier. Right. And so then you take what you were already doing and passionate about and you combine it with this new thing that you happen to experience because now you're, you have the background to be able to do something with that. And then that maybe come, becomes a new initiative that you never could have imagined yourself doing, right? I have a guy that I just interviewed on my podcast who went to prison for robbery for 10 years. And just kind of considered himself to be the lowest, you know, rung of the earth. He didn't kill anybody or anything like that, but he was there and he got convicted. And this friend of his from the old neighborhood in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, reached out to him two or three years after he'd been in prison and said, hey, would you mind writing a letter about your life experience to my school children? She was a teacher. And so he took his time. He wrote a letter to them. And then all 17 of them wrote him a letter back and it just completely blew his mind because 
they were calling him a hero and they were saying how insightful he was. And he was like a 24 year old sort of in his mind, a knucklehead, right? Like I haven't done it. Why are you calling me a hero? I'm in prison right now. There's so many people out there doing so many more profound things than what I'm currently experiencing. But he realized he had this gift for connecting with young people and kind of mentoring them through their challenges because he had been through a lot of challenges in his life leading up to him going to prison. And he was uniquely qualified to be in that position more so than almost anyone else. And so that became his sort of recognized calling, right? Now, he, there's no way you can set out. You can't plan, okay, I'm going to I'm going to rob these people and then I'm going to go to prison and then my friend is going to write me letters and then that's how I'm going to figure out my calling, right? It's already in the system. All you have to do is just keep doing whatever you feel naturally inclined to do. Sometimes it's great stuff. Sometimes maybe you're researching what not to do and then you end up finding your purpose through that. It's a little more of a painful path. No one wants to go to prison, but you know, hey, if that's your situation, there's an opportunity in there for you if you're open and available to it. So I I just tell people, don't worry about all, don't worry about trying to find what you think your calling or your path is. Just do what you feel naturally curious about and your path will find you. I love it. We'll close there. Like, (laughs) thank you so much. Knowing where to look. No, it's a great way to close. It's a great way to close. I love the book. I love your message. We all could use a little bit of inspiration, a little bit of purpose, and knowing where to look is the, the place to get it. So thank you. Thanks, brother.